Amen. Amen. May it be so. Welcome, everybody. Good morning. I'm so glad you're here today to worship the Lord on a beautiful, beautiful fall morning. My name is Pastor Simon, one of the pastors that gets to serve you here at Hinsdale Covenant. And we are in a series right now that we are exploring from the book of Hebrews, which is one of the books in the, uh, the New Testament. Maybe if you got a brand new shiny Bible today, that could be the first place you kind of crack it open to. That'd be great. We're going to look at chapter 10 in a moment. The book of Hebrews is mysterious. It's, it's, uh, it's, the author is not known, um, or at least the, the author is not agreed on. So we're not actually sure who wrote it. The audience and the date, we can, we can kind of assume, uh, but it doesn't have the distinguishing marks that some of the other traditional epistle letters have, which is, again, part of its mystery. There's no, like, welcome greeting or blessing to a particular group that lets us know exactly who it's for. There's no uh, uh, accolades at the end. Oh, greet this person or that person or this person. There's none of that. And so it, it kind of lacks those, those kind of distinguishing features of an epistle. And yet, I got to be honest, it's one of my favorite books. I, it's for sure one of my top 66 books of the Bible. But no, I really actually do enjoy Hebrews. I really always have. There's a richness to the wisdom of, of Hebrews um, that you have to work for. And I don't mind that. And it's filled with inspiring, quotable passages that are honestly really pressed into my heart over the years. Now, what we do know is that the book of Hebrews was written to a church of formerly Jewish, now Christian believers. And it would have been very early in the gospel era. Like, Jesus would have just ascended, and it was sometime within that first generation. Uh, we can trust that it was before 70 AD, before the fall of the great temple, that this church was, you know, uh, uh, looking at these letters, this letter called, called Hebrews. So it's very early in the gospel era, and it seems to address a particular concerns, which many of the letters have some kind of corrective nature to them. But what seems to be a concern to the author, who again, we don't know, to the church, who we're not exactly sure, is that some of them were falling back into Jewish law rights. Now, again, we're going to look at that this morning. Maybe nothing particularly wrong with that, I suppose, except they had accepted Christ, and that made some of the things that they were doing no longer needed, not relevant anymore. It seems clear, according to the book, that they were facing some kind of social persecution, and there was threats of even more to come, maybe even things getting more serious. Was that causing them to fall back? into some of their old safe ways, perhaps. The other one seems to be a concern uh, to the author of Hebrews is that many of them were falling back into sin as well. And that's always a problem, isn't it? They were ignoring the opportunity or the responsibility to see real change in their lives based on having received the gospel. That when, one, when someone finds Christ and accepts that gift of grace, there's a change that happens. And that the, today's reading is also going to address that. The book of Hebrews is exceptionally well thought out, like it's really rich, like I said, in its wisdom. But there's an urgency to it, an appeal for God's people in Christ to remain holy, holy being distinct or separate from the rest of the world, and to claim a purposefulness in their Christian walk. So that's, see... When I add all that up, that's to me why Hebrews is, is really one of my favorite books to, to connect into. There's an urgent appeal here. 
for believers to remain holy in a world and then also a, to create a purpose in their walk. Today, we're going to look at chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to add on 14 as well. So again, if you happen to have a crispy new Bible, this might be a good time to open up. Otherwise, there's some, some not-so-crispy Bibles uh, tucked under the seats if you have, or you can open it up on your phone. This might be a great way just to have a hands-on Bible experience. Um, and I just, oh, I love that sound of pages turning. That's so great. So today we're going to look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 10 and 14. Now let me give you an overview because, again, very dense reading. Go ahead and turn there if you want to. But this particular chapter, the author is going to, to address the futility of keeping the Old Testament sacrificial system of animals as sin offerings. Yay, I know. You don't, they don't need to sacrifice animals anymore as sin offerings. Why? Because it would ignore the power of Christ's greater-than sacrifice that would inspire a change in how they worshipped because they would understand the great value of Christ's death for sin. And his death for sin received encourages holiness as they walk in the reality of the good news, the gospel. So, yay, animal sacrifices from the Old Testament. I know, before your guard goes up, we're going to spend some time in the Word, and, and normally I'd make you stand, and we'd kind of, out of reverence for the Word, but I want to walk you a little more dynamically through this chapter, so go ahead and keep the book open in your lap, or just, you know, read the words on the screen. I'm going to walk you dynamically through it, because I, I really want the Word to stick out this morning, but I don't want to just go over it so quickly that you're like, well, I didn't really get any of that, so, so let's uh, open up the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 1 through 10 and 14, that begins this way. Hear these words from Scripture that say, the law, the Old Testament law, it's only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it, the law, can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered, these sacrifices? For those who worship would have been cleansed from their sin once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sin. But see, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. And again, he's talking about the annual Jewish rite of animal sacrifices to pay for sin. And the author is saying here in this opening of chapter 10, sin offerings have always been ineffective for revealing true righteousness. They were performed as prescribed by the word, but they were just empty every year, happening every year, and they weren't revealing true righteousness. They weren't uh, preventing them from being uh, cleansed from their sin. They were keeping them from being cleansed from their sin. He goes on to say, It is impossible for the blood of goats or bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Now he said this through his works, if not his own words, quoting Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, speaking to the Lord, but a body you have prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, God, you were not pleased. And then Christ said, Here I am, as it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. What the author is telling us here is that Jesus presents himself as the sacrifice that is greater than any animal sacrifice ever could be 
because of, he's doing it of his own will. He's an active and willful participant, willingly giving his life over for others. Now, the word is going to give us a commentary on that. It says, first, did you hear what Christ said? And again, he said this in function, if not in word. He said, sacrifices, burnt offerings, uh, or sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, and other sin offerings, Lord, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although they were offered in accordance to the law. But then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. Now, in doing so, Jesus set aside the first kind of sin offering to establish the second, a final and greater sin offering. And by that will, that action, here's the, listen to this part, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Please tell me you heard that last sentence. Let me read it again. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Do you see the impact Christ's sacrifice is supposed to have on those who believe in him? What an amazing gift. Now, this is repeated in verse 14, which I wanted to put down there for you. It restates this wonderful truth. For by one sacrifice, Christ has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And if you have accepted that gift of grace, that includes you. If I have accepted that gift of grace, that includes me. If we have accepted that gift of grace together, that is us. He has made perfect forever. And he's continuing to reveal a holiness in us and through us. I hope you receive that as good news today. It's beautiful, beautiful words. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the gift of your word. And if we stopped right there, Lord, I pray that'd be enough. Because you've done something, Jesus, there by surrendering your life for us, paid the penalty of our sin once and for all. And then you also, God, share your holiness with us and the promise of even perfection to come. God, would you let that truth wash over us today? Maybe we're here today and we're discouraged in our walk. Maybe we're here and we, we just don't know if we've ever experienced that transformation in your spirit. Holy Spirit, would you continue to reveal your truth over us? Once and for all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our series is called uh, Greater Than, and it is about that question, following Jesus in light of the wisdom of Hebrews, following Jesus, which has been our theme for this year, and I was observing even last week just how much Jesus we're talking about uh, you know, every single week, which I hope you have found just as encouraging, even in the worship songs and obviously in the text. We're talking a lot about what Jesus has done and how wonderful he is and greater than, greater than anything. Priests we talked about, greater than uh, any God. He is greater than all things. Now, Culturally, we have a, 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 a great appreciation for the greats, don't we? If you're a sports fan, let me step off the word for a second. You're probably, you probably have people that you think players that are the greatest of all time, right? We have a cultural obsession with sports that's good. I watched a few games last night. I'll probably watch a few games today. I like to watch the uh, uh, football games and then during the commercials, flip over to the tennis matches and see who's playing and you know, kind of try to keep that going. But 
we're always in pursuit of identifying the greatest of all times, otherwise known as the GOAT. We want to know who's the GOAT, who's the greatest of all time baseball player, who's the greatest of all time basketball player, who's the greatest of all time tennis player, soccer players, who's the greatest of all time female athlete, male athlete, Olympic athlete. We're always concerned, always want to have conversation about who we think is the greatest of all time. Now, because I have the microphone on, I want to contribute to that conversation. I think sometimes we can confuse winningest with the greatest. If it was just about counting titles, you know, that makes it pretty easy normally. Like, okay, this person won more titles than other person. They're the greatest, right? But there's always an intangible to it. Like, sure, they might have won more titles, but was it easier then? I find what actually um, adds to that conversation about greatest of all time is usually personality. Like, are they someone who has integrity to the game? Are they an ambassador of the game? This is why sometimes there can be players that have been winningest at some point, and then you find out later, oh, they're kind of cheating and an advantage, and you're like, well, they're not really the greatest anymore. There's other ones. So we tend to look at character. Who is the person? Do they have integrity? Now, the other one, we tend to favor local heroes. I would have a very difficult time, assuming you're basketball fans, to convince you anyone other than the great Michael Jordan is the GOAT of basketball. But if you're not from around here, you might be willing to have that conversation. <laughs> and you probably have a bunch of people yelling at you too, right? Because we tend to identify with our local heroes. Those ones generally take precedent. What's fun about identifying a great hero or the GOAT is we want to align ourselves with them. Maybe wear the jersey or get the hat or you know, put their banner up on our social media. Or if you're one of those people, maybe you have a little shrine room your sports room where you got like trophies and pictures and portraits of your greatest of all time athletes. We want to align with them because it kind of feels often like their success can feel like my success. If I align myself, wear the hat, then I too look like Roger Federer, who is the greatest of all time. <laughs> we usually know a lot about our favorite players, our goats, stats and achievements. We're ready to argue with people if they say, no, that's not true. I remember one time I was playing tennis at the Hinsdale Courts this summer, we were talking about the upcoming US Open, and, and Nadal was about to play. And somebody from another court, didn't even know the person, came over and started talking to us about another player, Djokovic, who he said, he's the greatest. Who watches? He's going to win. I'm like, dude, you're not even playing with us. Like, you were way court over there. He came over already to tell us how Djokovic was the greatest, you know? We're ready to defend our greatest of all times. And when it comes to the goats, especially the ones that we like, we want their legacies to last. We'll say things like, oh, those records, those are never going to be broken. Those are never going to be broken. There'll never be a greater player than that, we hope. In a little while, I'll give you my contribution to who I think may be the greatest of all time, including athlete. It may not be as much of a surprise to you, but in the Old Testament, there was also an obsession with the goat, but in a different context. <laughs> they were sin offerings. It's okay to groan. I knew that was going to do it. <laughs> they were sin offerings. If you review the Levitical law early in your Bible, uh, chapters Leviticus chapters 4 to 7, it does give you some detail about the sacrificial system in which animals such as goats or rams, bulls, lambs, or doves or pigeons would be ritually slaughtered in remembrance of one's sin and shame. And if you've ever read those sections, or tried to, maybe you have the same experience I do, which is, ew, that's so gross. 
it's so gross because you, know, you bring this uh, animal forward and they have to cut it and they're spreading the blood everywhere and they're talking about what to do with the entrails and they're burning some of it, eating some of it. You can eat some of this, eat some of that, burn some of that. So it's gross, right? But it's also sacred at the same time amid all this cutting and blood and stuff and parts. And you think about how big some of these animals were and just it's, it's really gross, you know? I mean, unless you grew up on a farm, then you think it's awesome. But for me, it just sounds gross. But it's also sacred at the same time. And the way that I feel like we can work that out is, is the understanding that our sin is gross. Sin is gross. Sin is like an animal being slaughtered that didn't, an innocent animal. It's just gross. But you can see in the same way God wants to take our gross. He's willing to. He's willing to take our gross and wash it into something that is sacred. God wants to take our gross, our sin, and wash it into something holy that is sacred. Now, these animals that they used for these ritual sacrifices, they had to be pure, normally unblemished, and they would be sacrificed with a priest who was the mediator, and their blood would be presented on the altar in different form or fashion, kind of been splashed around. And the idea here with all this kind of splashing of blood, again, it's, it's you know, hard to imagine. I'm so glad we're not doing that today because it would be hard to see and hard to watch. And that's, that's kind of the point is that it showed us, it showed the people tangibly what would be the penalty for their sin. Blood had to be shed. Sin creates death. And these, these animal sacrifices were a tangible way that people could come humbly before their God and bear witness to the penalty of their sin and, and walk away feeling that God cares for them. He wants to take their gross and make it into something that is sacred. But centuries later, the, the writer of, of Hebrews sees that the practice of the sin offering, which officially sort of ended in 70 AD, which tells us why we think this book was written before that, because it seems to be still going on as he's writing, or she is writing. Centuries later, the writer of Hebrews sees that this practice of, of ritual sin offering had just become ritual. It had just become that, like an empty act, void of any like spiritual sacredness or power. You know, I remember um, my church in Texas was by a very large basilica. You know, it was a big, beautiful church. And it was mostly empty, uh, honestly. Up until a certain part of the year, heading towards Easter, you'd start to see the, you know, the parking lot fill up. And then suddenly on Easter Sunday, they'd pack multiple you know, services, hours and hours of waiting to get in. And then what well, it was, it was beautiful in some way, but the next Sunday I'd come back by and it would basically be empty which, you know, can happen in, in any church, not just that. But that's just an example of what happens when worship just becomes ritual. It's like, all right, we did it. We checked the box, you know. The writer of Hebrews was concerned that these sin offerings just become ritual. It was just checking a box. There was no spiritual authority to it. There was no power, no sacredness behind it. And that people were using these in a, as an excuse to sin. You know, I presented the animal, and, and, and uh, that was my sin offering right there, and now I can go back and do whatever I want. See you next year. It became an excuse to sin. Again, it lacked power to bring them into any kind of holiness. It was just an excuse to sin. 
They were doing it, but it wasn't really any lasting authority, any lasting kind of worship in their lives. The sin offerings, these animal sacrifices, most importantly, were no longer needed. They were no longer needed. If we understood who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in giving his life, they would and we would understand that there was no longer a need to come and beg for forgiveness and have blood splattered over the altar because the last lamb has been born and slaughtered for our sin. So there's no need to go back to the old ways and to do so takes the mystery and the beauty out of what Christ has done. And so that's what he said has been happening. It became ritual, became an excuse to sin. It was no longer needed under Christ. Why? Now we go back to our reading. He said in the opening uh, of chapter 10, and I love the beauty of the language here. He says the law, the Old Testament law of sacrifice, it was only a shadow of the good things that are coming. And I parked for a while on that picture, like, what is that shadow? You know, I was thinking, my shadow is here, but I'm here. Is, you know, what does that mean? And I was getting the impression there was foreshadow, meaning, like, if you picture a door, let's say you're sitting in a room, and the room is dark, and there's a light on the other side of the doorway, and there's someone coming into that doorway, and the light is behind them. What happens is their shadow would arrive into the room long before the person physically entered into the space that you were in, right? And perhaps, depending on the angle of the, the, light, the light, that shadow may be long or taller than the person itself, and so it arrives into the room long before the person themselves comes into the room. That's what he was talking about. That the law was a foreshadow, perhaps in the shape of, but not in the substance of, who Christ is, and now he has come into the room. I love this image. I think this is so beautiful. It's such a great way to describe the Old Testament and the law. And, you know, like you look at these Bibles and they're so wonderful, but, you know, the Gospels is like the back part of it. Most of it is Old Testament. And, you're, you know, sometimes it's hard to be like, what is that? Do I need that? And yes, we do, because that Old Testament part, it's the foreshadow. It, it's the portrait. It's the shadow of the substance of who will come. And when we can grasp that beautiful picture of Christ coming, it makes it so wonderful it gives purpose to the Old Testament and how we're supposed to appreciate it because we begin to see the image of Christ in the shadow of the Old Testament law coming towards us and invites us, it invites us to see him more clearly as Christ arrives on the scene, enters the room in the Gospels. Now we see what they, we were longing for the whole time and it's real and it is substance. I just think that's such a great picture of the way to process and think and appreciate the Old Testament. The law is convicting. The Old Testament is convicting. And then Jesus comes and brings that resolution to that tension with his grace and his love. It's important for us to see that. It reminds me of my own journey of faith. You know, still at this age, I have not lived more life as a non-Christian, as a Christian than I was a non-Christian. Most of my life still to this day, I was a non-believer. And I was pretty content with myself, thought I was doing pretty good, living my own life, doing my own thing, not bothering anybody. But then something changed. I began to feel a sense of conviction, was it? That somehow my life was off track. 
that somehow I was actually, even though I was sharp on the outside, inside I was rotten. Something really stunk. And that sense of conviction started to draw me closer. That was the shadow of the law convicting me. And then suddenly, when Christ entered the room, I surrendered to him because I saw more clearly the beauty of his grace. The law is only a shadow, but it's not the reality itself. Second thing is one of the aspects that makes Christ greater than any of the animal sacrifices is that he came to the altar by his own will, by his own will, by the will of the Father. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus prayed, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. The animals that they were using for sacrifices, sure, they were pure, sure, they were without blemish, but they also lacked morality. They lacked their own will. Or if you'll allow me, and maybe you're an animal lover, that's okay. They lacked soul. So the blood of these fleshly creatures could not cleanse us who are both flesh and soul and spirit. So then, Christ comes willingly giving himself for us out of his love, even though we're still sinners, he gives himself as a sacrifice and he is everything pure and holy and unblemished in his body and his spirit and his soul. And by his wounds, we are healed. That's what makes him the greatest of all sacrifices. No need for anything else. Let's go back one more time before we wrap to that question of the greatest of all time. The goat. Who is the greatest of all time? Now, if you were happened to be here this summer during Cubs sports camp, I remember teaching this to the kids, and it was, it was, it was big to me. And so I'm recycling it and offering it to you. because We were talking about who is the, one of the, the greatest athletes of all time, and I pitched Jesus, looking at all the different things physically that Jesus had done that showed him to actually be a tremendous athlete. But one of the things that he did to me reveals him to be the greatest of all time athletes in terms of his strength. Because Jesus carried his own cross up to the mountain where he died for our sin. Now, it's possible that the cross weighed up to 50, maybe 100 pounds. And he had to carry it, by the way, after having been beaten for quite a while, you know, up to the mountain of Golgotha. It was the hill of Golgotha, I mean, about a half mile maybe. But there was so much more to the weight of that cross than the wood. Carrying his own cross, Jesus went out to the place of the skull. There they crucified him. See, what we understand from Scripture is that the wages of sin is death. Sin has substance. That's why animals are being bled out in substance to pay for sin. Sin has substance, meaning wages, and it requires payment. And later in Hebrews chapter 12, in beautiful language, the author says we should surrender every sin and every weight that holds us down. He even equates sin and weight. And what I see when I look at Jesus carrying the cross is not only did he have the physical weight of the cross upon him, but Jesus was actually carrying all the weight of all the sin of all time onto the cross where he suffered and died for it. Jesus carried all of the sin all of the weight of all of the world of all time onto himself, onto that cross, was lifted up, suffered, and died for all of the sin of all of the world. He willingly did this, by the way. 
to satisfy the great divine economy and to pay for all of our debts, to pay for all of our debts. Now, there's sometimes, and I remember thinking this too, that, wait, did he just die for my sins because I'm a Christian or maybe sins of people that go to church? No, no, no. No, he died for all of the sins of all the world of all time, which is why after he was raised, he said to his disciples, oh, you go tell people about that. Because it's good news. Your sins have been forgiven. He's carried them onto the cross and he died for them. And it's not just me and you who are sitting here today. It's you and the person that you know that you ache for, that's still living in their sin. It's your neighbor. It's your coworker. It's your classmate. It's your extended family. It's everyone. It's people around the world which is why it's such good news that needs to be declared. Do you know that Jesus died for your sins? And if you accept that gift, you are set free from your sins and you begin to live in the gift of eternal life. It's not only good news, it's the greatest good news of all time. And Jesus did it, which to me identifies him truly as the goat. Now, what I love about Jesus as the goat is he wants us to identify with him. He wants us to identify with him. But not just by wearing the jersey or keeping a little you know, poster of him in our bedroom or something. He wants us to align with him by picking up our own cross daily and following him and sharing in the holiness that he's covered us with. He wants to take our gross and turn it into something that is sacred, which is why the author said, by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Jesus wants to take your gross and make it into something sacred. And we participate in that when we worship him giving him our highest gratitude. We participate that when we make every effort to love God and love the others that he places in our lives. We, we, we participate in that when we live with hope in Christ alone in a world that's so desperately lacking hope. We do that when we recognize that, yes, earthly champions are wonderful, but they're here today and they're gone tomorrow. But Jesus' victory over sin and shame and death is a record that will stand for eternity. And that deserves our highest allegiance. We do this in recognizing that Christ is indeed the greatest sacrifice ever. And we need no, need no longer to be reminded of our sin because we look forward to raiding with him in a new heaven, perfected. Meanwhile, we let him teach us by his word. We let him counsel us by his spirit. We let him invite us into enjoying the community of believers as we're being made holy, separate, and pure in a world that so desperately needs to see the difference the gospel makes. Now, maybe you've joined us this morning and you're here and you feel unworthy. Every time you come to church, that door feels heavy and you come in. I don't want you to leave that way. Christ is the greatest of all sacrifices and by his blood, we are set free from that and we can rejoice or maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling a sense of conviction of, of maybe putting a little bit too much worship onto earthly heroes. 
and not enough on to Christ. Let him continue to work at this. Soak in that idea that what he has done for you, that he's died for you and raised for you, and he has nothing but grace and love for you, and give him your heart today and let him begin to invest in you a heart of worship and praise. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're like, you know, I consider all those sacrifices and what Jesus has done. I just don't know if I really need it. I'm pretty good. I, I've, I've lived a good life. I, I go to church sometimes. I feel like I've always known the truth. That's great. That's so great. And even for you, you can remember that your obedience, your goodness, is not of your own works that you can boast. You can say, thank you, Jesus, for investing in me your spirit that I can walk in obedience before you, my God, my Savior, my Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your grace, the great story you've invited us into, that Jesus, the great sacrifice, dies for our sin to set us free from the penalty and pain and guilt and shame. Lord, I pray for any who are here this morning who maybe they just haven't ever grasped that story. Maybe they've never fully recognized the penalty and the price that was paid so that we don't have to do any ritualized kind of cleansing and daily sort of repentance, but instead we can thank you, God, for your forgiveness. I pray for any who are here that feel unworthy, that maybe feel trapped in habitual sin. We too should remember, God, that you've set us free from that. You've broken the bonds of, of sin. You've broken the bonds of our shame. And we can walk now in the newness of life. Lord, I pray for your spirit to continue to invade us with that sense of truth that you are truly the greatest of all, and to you alone we worship and praise. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's sing together this hymn of our faith.